This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And uh, we are back uh, working our way through the book of Acts. Now we're going to cover all of chapter 14 today. So uh, I'm going to read it in sections um, and cover a section at a time. And uh, this, is a, this is a passage that really I want to focus on uh, mission. And uh, the the early we're going we're to track the end of Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is the end of their uh, first missionary journey. So it's going to be about mission. It's going to be about taking the gospel to people that don't know the gospel. And uh, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you say, "Wow, I'm, is this really relevant for me uh, to be talking about some kind of mission? I'm not even a believer. I'm a, I'm investigating. I'm curious. Whatever it might be." I think you picked a great Sunday to be here uh, because we're going to pull back the curtain and uh, just put our, I'm going to put the cards on the table. We want you to be a Christian. So whoever invited you wants you to be a Christian. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, but we're going to kind of pull the curtain back and you'll be able to see why does the person who invited you or your parents or your neighbor, whoever it is, why do they want you to be a Christian? And here's what else you're going to find out. How are they going to go about doing that? So good, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, I think. Is that right? To be forewarned is, yeah, that's it. I almost thought I said it backward. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. So you might as well know what we're up to. You might as well know what we think and why we want you to know Christ. So I think this is actually the perfect Sunday. Um, you should, if you're investigating it, you should go and, and be exposed to evangelism training, I think, and think, why are they saying this? Why are they doing? Well, you'll know. So the secret's out. Here we go. Uh, before we read 14, let me just remind you where we were in 13. In chapter 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas had been in a town called Pisidian Antioch. They're going to go back to Syrian Antioch here at the end of this chapter. But when they were there, uh, they showed up at the synagogue on a Saturday, and the leader of the synagogue said, hey, do you have anything to share? Which you don't ever ask a preacher, do you have anything you'd like to say? Uh, you just, you know, the meeting's over at that point, and it was. So Paul gets up and runs with these Jewish people through the whole history of Judaism, and then points out Jesus Christ is the Messiah. People are blown away. They literally, the text says, they beg them to come back the next Saturday. They come back the next Saturday. The text says the whole city was there. Almost the whole city was there to hear. So the unbelieving Jews who didn't believe in Jesus were very upset about this, that they were getting the whole city to follow them. Um, and so they just really resisted them. They went to the Gentiles who were non-Jews. They went to the Gentiles and said bad things and tried so they wouldn't listen to Paul and Barnabas teaching about Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas basically said, okay, look, we came to you, the Jews. Uh, Christ is your Messiah. We came to you. You don't want to believe. So we're just going to move on. I'm going to the Gentiles, is what he said. So the Gentiles are like, yes, he's coming our way. And so then he leaves and goes to the Gentiles. And I'm going to read the first seven verses of 14. Then we'll pray. And then we'll work our way through section by section. And at the end, I want to have some, uh, some applications that relate to mission and how we view mission. So chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together, this is Paul and Barnabas, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. 
But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your heart for people, which is expressed through your word. And we pray today as we study this passage that you would touch us, that you would open our eyes, and that you would enable us to understand your heart for people, your heart for us, your love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would see that, and your love for others. And Lord, we pray that we'd see your calling to us to go to others and share this wonderful good news. And we pray that we would learn from this text that you would give us appropriate expectations and and a biblical vision and a heart to to be the people you're calling us to be lord show us the savior jesus christ and his work today we pray in a way that will transform us for that is what we need we need to hear from you today so speak to us through this text in jesus name amen So they're in Pisidian Antioch. They travel about a hundred miles to this town called Iconium. Um, And, uh, you know, travel is mostly by foot uh, or maybe exclusively by foot. So a hundred miles is a long way. They get finally to Iconium. And this is a significant city. Most, Most of where Paul goes is strategic, significant. This is a significant city. It's a, it's an agricultural base. It's a commerce base. And um, they, they do the same thing they normally do. Verse 1, they entered together into the synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So they start off in the synagogue. Most cities they go to, they always start off in the synagogue. Why? Because they have home field advantage. They're connecting with people with whom they share a common view of the world. They have a common scripture, the Hebrew Bible. They have a common God, Yahweh, which is God's name uh, that he uh, gives himself in the Old Testament. Uh, They have common concepts. So if Paul and Barnabas stand up in the synagogue and talk about God and sin and sacrifice and forgiveness and grace and all these kind of things, there's no definition needed. Uh, Everybody understands where they're coming from. So they go to the people that they are most similar to culturally and with regard to their understanding of truth. And they come to them and they preach, verse 3, the word of grace. They speak the word of his grace. What is that? They tell the message of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who came to earth to die for sinners. In our place, we're all sinful, separated from a holy God because of our sin. Jesus dies in our place. He rises from the dead, defeating the power of sin, so that by f- if we trust in him, we can have our sins forgiven and have new life. That's the word of grace, that it's not our works that make us right with God. It's God's work for us in Jesus that allows us to be reconciled to him. So they preach the word of his grace, and God does, verse 3 again, he grants signs and wonders to be done by their hand. So amazing things are happening. Now, when we read the rest of the book of Acts, we see these kinds of things, people being healed. We see people who are inhabited by evil spirits, demons. We see people freed of demons. Um, 
we see these kinds of miracles that are done. And so they're preaching the message. Some miraculous things are happening as well. And many Jews believe and many Gentiles believe, but some Jews don't believe. And they began what really is a slander campaign. In verse 2, it says the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. So they said things to them to poison their minds. This is the effect of uh, of slander, to speak against, to speak against falsely. They began to make accusations about Paul and Barnabas. Some of them may have been true, some of them may have been false. But they begin to make these accusations that poison people's minds. And once they're poisoned by this message, they're not listening, they're not believing. They are rejecting Paul and Barnabas as well. So how do Paul and Barnabas respond when there is this campaign against them? Well, they, verse 3, remain for a long time and they speak boldly for the Lord. So they just continue preaching. They continue to tell good news. They've got good news. They're going to continue to tell this good news of Jesus. People need this. This is what gives them everlasting life. This is what changes them. This is everything. So they're going to continue to tell this good news. Well, what ultimately happens is the city is divided. So they bring good news and it divides the people into two camps. Verse 4. That's really the ultimate effect. When we look at Iconium, we could say that this passage is about gospel division. Gospel division. I meant to say that at the beginning. But this section is about gospel division. They bring the gospel. Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. So when the gospel, the good, the gospel is the good news of Jesus. When the, when the news of Jesus is understood, it will have a dividing effect. It will separate. It will separate. Um, Jesus makes exclusive claims. So he doesn't, Jesus doesn't play well in a pluralistic sandbox where everybody uh, sort of has their own say and all views are equal. Uh, everybody should have their own say for sure all for that. But he makes exclusive claims that don't allow other claims to stand with his. For instance, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to the God the Father is what he says. And so because he makes these kinds of statements, uh, it is separating. He is either the Messiah or he is not. There's not another option. He is either God or he is not. So some people think he in here, he's not God. How dare you say he's God? That's blasphemy to the Jews. And so they're sharply divided uh, over Jesus. And that is the way it is today. When the good news comes, it has differing effects on people. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. You ever heard that saying? The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. So the sun comes out, and there's two different effects. If you have wax before the heat, it will melt. If you have clay before the heat, it will harden. And the same is true of the human heart. The gospel comes forth. Some hearts will be tenderized and softened and receive that message. Others will harden and resist that message. And that's where the division takes place here. This isn't really surprising when we read the Bible because Jesus said this would happen. Jesus said that his message would be divisive. That it would separate people, even people as close as family. Some of you in the room have that experience. You're, you're a Christian and your faith has separated you from your family. Well, Jesus said this is, this is to be the case. Um, in Matthew 10, verse 34, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, he is speaking in very strong terms there. And he's saying that someone who believes in me, Jesus says, this might cost you some relationships, including some of the people you're closest to, because their hearts may harden to the message, and they may oppose me, and because they oppose me, they'll oppose you. But if you lose your life in following me, you will gain real life by knowing me. But he's, he's giving a message to, 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 to buyer beware. Uh, beware the cost of following Christ. And so when we read the book of Acts, what we find over and over is the message of Jesus just being fulfilled. So it's not surprising that people would be divided. Now, that doesn't mean that a Christian should actively seek to be divisive by being arrogant. Sometimes there's division and there's rejection because we're jerks, not because we're telling the good news. And so there's no brownie points for being rude, obnoxious, arrogant, self-righteous. If people are divided from us because we're self-righteous, Uh, that's on us. That's our problem. That is not pleasing to the Lord. That's dishonoring to the Lord. So some of us have experienced, some of us have been that person, and some of us have experienced that person and said, man, if that's Christianity, I want no part of that sort of pompous, arrogant kind of an attitude. I don't want any part of that. So that's not what's happening here. They're not, Paul's not coming in and being pompous and uh, arrogant. Pa- Paul is coming in and saying, look, Jesus is God, came to give his life. He's the only way. And not everybody's going to respond well to he's the only way. Sometimes we're surprised when people respond with opposition to what we think is the best news imaginable. We believe this is the best news imaginable. It really is. So we can be surprised when other people respond negatively. But we shouldn't be shocked. That's just what Jesus taught. That's just what we see in the book of Acts. Um, And if they are shocked and they are opposing, let's just make sure they're opposing the right thing. Um, not a narrow, not a narrow culture, not a political ideology, not a lifestyle that's not biblical that maybe we've put on people. Let's make sure they're just re- rejecting Jesus. Nothing but Christ should they reject. Um, so anyway, that's what happens. There's gospel division that takes place. Well, the people want to kill them. This happens a lot in the Bible. They want to kill them, and so they hear that they want to kill them, so they leave, and they go to the uh, Lycaonia Valley, and they go to the cities of Lystra and Derby. and here we have not just gospel division, we have gospel persecution. Verse 8. Now, at Lystra, this is one of the most fascinating passages in all of Acts, I think, by the way. Verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So here they leave, and uh, they leave Iconium, and uh, there's a threat of their, there's a death threat against them. And so they, they leave and they go to this uh, city, Lystra. Now, Lystra is very different. It's not along a trade route. Uh, and even everything is different about Lystra. You'll notice it's the first place we've read they don't go to a synagogue. They don't go to a synagogue because there's likely no synagogue in Lystra. Lystra is a very backwoods town. They've been going to more prominent towns. I mean, they even uh, they, they witnessed to the governor of a whole island and led him to Christ. So they've been in different places. This is very backwoods, backwater. Ignorant. A lot of the people are probably illiterate in this culture, uh, in this town, Lystra. They're fully pagan, and uh, they're not they're not Jewish at all. And so they're not coming in with the same kind of home field advantage. They're coming in uh, and they're playing on someone else's turf. And so, why do they go to this place? I mean, it could be a couple of reasons. One is it could be a refuge. People are trying to kill you. Let's go to a place of safety. But it's probably because God has a heart for all kinds of people. God ministers not only to those who have a cultured background, not only to those who are familiar with the scripture, not only to those who are aware of his truth, not only Bible Belt people, but God goes to people that don't know anything about him. God goes to people that are totally immersed in in, uh, different religion and different uh, idolatries and he ministers the gospel. So I think it shows shows that he has a heart for all people and it's also going to show us something about mission and how to reach out to those who have no Christian or Judeo-Christian background at all. So it starts with a miracle. That's what happens when he shows up at Lystra. And if you were here from the beginning of this study, this miracle is a lot like Acts 3, where Peter and Barnabas going into the gate beautiful. I'm sorry, Peter and John are going into the gate beautiful in the temple and they heal the lame man. This is very similar. Uh, He has not walked his whole life. He's been lame from birth. Uh, Paul is speaking. Paul looks intently at him, it says in verse 9, looks intently at him and speaks to him. And, and he sees that he has faith, and he speaks to him. He says, stand up and walk. The guy stands up. He springs up, it says, and everybody is blown away. They cannot believe. Who are these two guys who have come into town and just speak, and a guy is healed? And this response is very different than, the, than, than what we see in the ministry of Jesus. This response is very different than what we see in Acts. It's, it's the greatest case of mistaken identity in the whole Bible. Because they think 
that this, these are Greek gods who have come in their midst. They think this is Zeus. They think this is Hermes. Now, I, I don't know, like somewhere in middle school, it's a blur, but I remember doing Greek mythology and thinking, this is the biggest waste of time in my life. But it's coming back. It was valuable because, because at least I knew these names. I didn't remember a lot about them, but I knew Zeus. And, and they all have like a Roman name too, right? I don't know if he's Jupiter or something, but they all have like a Greek and a Roman name. And... Uh, so this is, he's the, he's the head God guy. And so they think this is Zeus and, and that Barnabas is Zeus. Probably Barnabas is older. Hermes was the son of Zeus. So it could be that Paul is younger and that's why they assume, wow, there's the father and son team or something like that. Paul is speaking and Hermes was a spokesman. And so they think that he is Hermes. And what's so funny about this is they start speaking out. It, Luke makes this point in writing in verse 11. They start speaking out in Lycaonia in language, a foreign language. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Paul and Barnabas don't know what they're saying. So they heal the guy, and all of a sudden, everybody is yelling out. There's commotion. People are running around. They're pointing back probably to the Zeus temple at the front of the city. Everybody's excited, and, and, and they don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on until the priest of Zeus brings oxen out with garland around his horns, uh, signifying this is about to be a dead ox who's going to be sacrificed to Paul and Barnabas. And until they see the guy coming and they realize, oh, they think we are gods. Oh, no, this is not what we're looking for. We weren't trying to, to impress everyone like that. We weren't trying to make them think that we're gods in the flesh. So they rip their clothes. Uh, that's what Jews do when, when there's blasphemy. When they hear blasphemy, they rip their clothes, being called the gods, blasphemous. They rip their clothes. They run into the crowd and they say, look, we are just like you. We put on our toga, you know, one, uh, one leg as well, just like you do. We are just like you folks. We are not gods. Now you read this and think, why would they just make that assumption? And uh, every, every New Testament scholar I read all told the same story. That, you know, maybe, maybe 25, 50 years before this, the, the poet Ovid had told a, a story. And he had told the story that Zeus and Hermes had come to this area, the Lycaonian Valley, maybe not this exact city, but they had come to the area in human form. And they visited 1,000 homes. It was a door-to-door God campaign. The gods come down in human flesh. They go door-to-door. And uh, they ask for lodging, and 1,000 people neglect them, do not invite them into their home. Finally, they go to a really poor house of a, of a guy named Philemon, his wife's name is Bacchus, and they go to this house, and they're very poor, but they welcome them into their little kind of shanty of an abode, and they feed them whatever they have. And so what the gods do is they lift this house up, make it a temple, put it on top of a hill, and Philemon and Bacchus look down into the valley, and a flood comes and washes Way and kills all thousand homes, kills all the people in the thousand homes. So, because they were inhospitable to the gods, they all got killed. So now the gods have come back. They're assuming and they think, "Whoa! Not only are we, we'll get them a meal and give them a place to stay, but we're going to offer sacrifice and show that we know that they are gods." And so, this is probably what's going on here: that they are all have this this folklore, this legend in their mind, which would have been part of the culture, and they're thinking, "Wow, we've got to honor the gods who are in." our midst. So they they try to stop it all and then they begin to preach the truth of God to them. Now here's what's very interesting and instructive for us about this. This presentation of the good news is very different 
than what they preach when they talk to Jews. We're going to see this in chapter 17 as well at Mars Hill. We're going to see how does Paul take the gospel to those who don't have a religious background. And that's what we see here. So look back when he was at Pisidian Antioch. um, Look at chapter 13. Verses 16 and 17. This is how Paul preaches the gospel to those with a Bible background. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So he starts with Genesis 12, Abraham. God chose our fathers, made them great in Exodus. He goes to the book of Exodus. Um, And so he starts with a common place. Everybody understands. Here, Paul starts very, very differently. Verse 15, why are you doing these things? We are men, we're not gods of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. He's still going to tell them the gospel. We're bringing you good news. He doesn't start in Genesis 12. If he, could, if he stood up to these Zeus worshipers, I mean, these are backwoods, uh, illiterate Zeus worshipers. And he doesn't start out with, open your Bibles to Genesis 12. They'd be, what are you talking about? We don't know. What do you mean, open your Bibles to Genesis 12? They don't know who Abraham is. They don't know about God's covenant with his people. Um, but he still wants to tell them good news. He says, I'm not a God. He's not a God. But we're here with good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is that you should turn from these vain things. What are vain things? Well, gods of the uh, Greek pantheon. You should turn from Zeus and Hermes, these vain, these useless, these idle, uh, these idols, these lifeless uh, legends, this lifeless folklore. You should turn away from that uh, and turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So he starts with Genesis 1. He goes back and says, look, you are worshiping a whole host of gods. And so when you want rain, there, you, you go and you sacrifice to a rain god. And uh, you sacrifice to a sun god. And you want to have children, so you sacrifice and, and follow a fertility god who will enable you to conceive. And, you know, so everything's about appeasing these various gods. That's what you want to do. Listen, I'm going to tell you there's one god. Those are dead. There is a living god, and he created everything. All of heaven and all of earth is created. So he goes and he takes their point of view and he, he, he says that actually there is one God who has created everything. So he starts with that news. And he says, verse 17, he did not leave himself with witness, without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. So for, for many years, nations haven't known about this God but, or haven't had the full message, but we're here to tell you that he has left a witness. You actually know about this God. If you think about it, this is the God who has given you rains uh, from heaven, uh, who has given you fruitful season. That is, he brought crops. It wasn't the crop God, the God of wheat or whatever it is, but it, it is this one God, he gave you fruitful season. He gave, he satisfied your heart with fruit and with gladness. He's left you with a witness. Not only the witness of provision, but the witness of human experience. So you've been satisfied with food. This God gave you the ability to be satisfied. You've been glad This is not the wine God who makes you glad. This is the God that provides gladness to humans. So the human experience that you have is from him. So he's 
communicate, kind of like Ecclesiastes. Not only does he provide the gift, but he provides the ability to enjoy the gift as well. So that's what he is communicating to them. Now, we don't know how he gets to Christ because it says, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice. So this is like desperation preaching. They're going to be killing ox and holding us up as gods. Uh, So he's just trying to shut all that down. We know he gets to Christ. Because in the next section, we're going to read about disciples and Lystra. So somebody starts following Jesus. We just get the starting point of the good news here. We don't get the whole, the whole event. Well, people are fickle, aren't they? Because in verse 19, the Jews from Antioch, that's Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. So now he's got two cities behind him. The Jews who he shook the dust off their feet in Pisidian Antioch and left. Those people are mad. The people in Iconium who plotted to stone him, they're mad. So those Jews have all come to, to the backwoods here, uh, and they, are, uh, they catch him. And they actually persuade the crowds to stone him. So he is being hailed as a god in one verse, and two verses later he's being executed. Does that sound familiar? Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. He's hailed as king of the Jews. And less than a week later, he's executed. Paul has the same thing. People are fickle. They, they think you're a god one day, they want you dead the next. Aren't we all that way? And so here's what they do. They, they stone him, and they drag him out of the city, thinking that he's dead. And we can read, that's, that's just a few words. I mean, if you think about that, a stoning is when people take rocks, and they throw them at someone, and pummel them until they're dead. And, and that's often not a quick process. And so he has been hit with rocks, bloodied, disfigured, uh, until his body looks like a corpse, and it's lifeless on the ground. And so by looking at it, they just assume there's no way he's going to make it out of this. So he's either just faintly breathing, or they don't see him breathing at all. Then, they don't cart him, you know, in a hearse. They drag his body outside of the city, and they just leave him there. So he is broken, he is unconscious, he is a bloody mess. And it says, this is where it says the disciples. So somebody became a Christian here. These are brand new disciples. When the disciples gathered about him, verse 20, he rose up and entered the city. I mean, just so matter of fact, wow. he, what do you mean he rose up? He rose up, and so they gather around him. It doesn't say what they did. It's not presented as a resurrection, like he came back to life. It's not presented that way. We don't know what happened. Were they crying and grieving? Were they praying? Probably, probably praying. And he just like opens up an eye, and then opens up another eye and stands up. And I think what's more miraculous than a guy who's left for dead standing up is that he walks back into the city where they stoned him. So I don't know if your impression of the Christian life and the apostles, that they were kind of soft, timid men. They were sort of uh, gentle souls. I don't know anybody who takes a stoning, left for dead, stands up and walks right back into the people that stoned him. What does this look like? He walks into town, he's bloody. Hey, didn't we stone you? Uh, didn't we pull you out? What are you doing here? He's walking around. Hey, good day. How's it going? How's it going? <laughs> Remember me? Uh, good curveball. I mean, what's he saying to them? I don't... <laughs> Walks back in, and uh, this is unbelievable. Now, he doesn't, 
I was going to say tempt faith. That's not a real biblical idea. But he doesn't, doesn't tempt, the, tempt them any further. The next day he goes to Derby. And so here there's gospel persecution. At first we saw there was gospel division. Here there's not just division, but there's literal persecution and opposition to the message. And Paul suffers uh, an attempt on his life that he mentions in 2 Corinthians, says, I was stoned. Yeah, this is what he's talking about. This area is Galatia. So he's talking about when he was in Galatia, he was stoned. He references this later in his life where he's going through, here's the marks of an apostle. So that's what it means to be an apostle. You have these kinds of experiences. Not a lot of people probably applying for that job. So he, he is uh, comes back out, and then they go to Derby. And now we're going to have Derby, and then the follow-up, the end of the journey, and the report of the journey. And here we have gospel fruit. So we had gospel division, we had gospel persecution, we had fruit along the way, but we really get a picture of the fruit of this journey at the end. So here's how the, here's how, uh, the first missionary journey ends. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby. And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, so they're going in reverse. And when they spoke the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, Syrian Antioch, where they started, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and there remained no little time with the disciples. So now they've made it all the way back. They go to Derby. We don't know what happens, but a lot of people follow the Lord. They have many, many disciples there. That's wonderful. And then they make their way back, which also reveals Paul's great trust in God, confidence in God, and love for these new Christians. He's going back to these new believers, and it's going to cost him. He's, I mean, it doesn't, but he's putting himself at risk. It could cost him. I mean, the first place he goes back to, it says, is that, uh, that, that he, goes, he goes back to Lystra. They return to Lystra. That was the city where he was stoned. And then they went back to Iconium. That was the city that wanted to stone him, but the people that wanted to stone him went to Lystra to fulfill the, fulfill the deed. So he goes back there where everybody is divided over him. Then he goes back to Antioch. There's talking about Pisidian Antioch, where the, the people's minds were, where they went in and they, they, they talked about him and they turned the Gentiles against him. So he goes back to the divided city there and then makes his way back through Cyprus and back to where he is from. So Paul and Barnabas go back. Why? Because they have a heart for people. Why? Because the Great Commission wasn't to make converts. It was to make disciples. And so they go back to ensure that these people that they love, that have trusted Jesus, that have believed in God in a very hostile environment are okay. You see Paul's shepherding heart here. He's not just an evangelist. He's not just a tough guy that can take a stoning. He's a guy that cares for people and wants to see churches established. And so he begins to go back and he cares for each of them and helps them. Um, You you see what he does when he goes back. Uh, Verse 22, he strengthens the souls, encourages them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He prepares them for their future. They ensured 
he ensured that they would be led and cared for because in each of these churches, even though they were young, he appointed elders. So he sets in, those are pastors, elders, overseers, uh, bishops, different words used in the New Testament. But he puts in elders, overseers, pastors, so that they can help people, they can teach people, they can guard people from false doctrine. And, and ultimately what's happening here is he is going back and ensuring that each church is established and he's establishing churches. He returns to Antioch in Syria where he was originally sent out gets with everybody, calls everybody together, and tells all that God had done for them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stay there for a long time, is what he says. So that's how it finishes. Now I want to make a couple of points that I think are... uh, 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 There's a lot of application that can be made from this chapter. It's fascinating, a fascinating chapter. But there's a few things I think are particularly important to note um, that apply for mission, and I really will only make two. And one is this, that God opens doors for the gospel. We read the summary of all of this experience. When he stands up to the people at his home church, his sending church, he goes back to the church that sent him and reports. And Paul's a church guy all the way. He's not just out doing crusades uh, and just letting things, just get some converts and leaving them their own. He's planting churches, and he's based out of a church. He goes back to the church that sent him, Antioch. He pulls the church together, and this is what he does, verse 27. He declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So here is Paul's summary. If he's got a documentary, if he's got a video to show everybody of the trip, uh, it's just going to highlight, this is what God did. Here's the open doors. Here's the people. You know, you got Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of uh, Cyprus on there, uh, the governor sharing his testimony or whatever. The messages are like, whoa, check Paul out. He got with people in power. And here's this Zeus scene. It's, it's not, he's not showing, he's saying, this is what God did. God saved this man. God converted people when they thought we were gods. God turned that and showed them that he had come to them, not that we had as God. And so he shows that God opens the door for the gospel. They declared all, the verse 27, that God had done with them. This is so key. They are dependent on God to open doors for them. And we see that. In Colossians 4, where Paul is asking another church to pray for him, he says, he's in prison, he says, pray that doors for the word may be opened. Pray that a door for the word may be opened. When Paul is in prison, this is his going to the church. Here's my prayer letter. It's his missionary prayer letter. He sends it out to the church and he says, would you pray that the doors would open that I can bring the word to people? So he viewed church planting, he viewed cross-cultural missionary work, he viewed being a witness, he viewed communicating the gospel as God opening a door. And he prayed for it, Colossians 4, and asked others to pray for him for it as well. And so when we think about our personal lives and seeking to reach out, when we think about our church seeking to be a light in the darkness and reach those who don't know the Lord, um, when we seek when we seek to represent Christ, to call those who don't know Him or who know Him and have wandered away to return to Him, we should be praying and thinking about open doors, looking for open doors, praying for open doors, because that's how He would evaluate this kind of ministry. He wouldn't promote His strategy. He wouldn't promote His preaching gift, though those are both there. He wouldn't pre. Oh man, I had this great line. I was in a bind. They're gonna they're gonna worship me, and so I did this deal. I ripped, and then I said this to them. Yeah, God is. A, oh, that is great. He's not not promoting himself. Matter of fact, he says he's pretty weak in his presentation. Is what we read from Corinthians. 
but he's promoting the open door. So the first thing about mission in our own lives as individuals, on your neighborhood block, on the soccer team that your kid plays on, in the office, on the job site, with your clients, with your extended family, uh, with your child who's not a believer, with your parent who's not a believer, the first place is God opens doors. Here's the second idea from this passage. We're called to walk through the doors. Nobody here gets saved without a testimony and without preaching. He doesn't say, we were in Iconium and we prayed for Lystra and no one went there, but everybody believed. It was amazing. That's not what he says. They had to go. It cost him a near-death experience. So they had to walk through the doors. And here's what we find, that when we walk through a door, we will meet people We are to meet people where they are on the other side of the door. That's what's so clear in these few chapters, is that Paul is meeting people where they are on the other side of the door. God opens the door. Paul will pray for God to open the door, ask people to pray for God to open the door. But when the door opens, when the door opens, you'll notice his methodology is to relate to people based on how they are on the other side of the door. Not to grab them by the neck and yank them in here and say, let's relate on my terms. That's not what he does. So when he's in a Jewish synagogue on the other side of the door, what does he see? He sees someone that knows Yahweh. He sees someone that knows the covenants. He sees someone that uh, knows the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature. He sees someone that evidently fears God. And, and so he's going to relate to them based on that. But when he goes to the backwoods of Lystra, he's not going to say, you guys come through this door over here. What do you mean you don't know about Abraham? Well, you've got to know about Abraham. What do you mean you don't... He doesn't do that. He relates to them based on where they are. I think the passage where he preaches, where he is, the section where he's preaching in Lystra is so instructive for us because he builds a bridge to them. An open door doesn't mean that we are absolved from relating in an appropriate way with people. It doesn't, an open door doesn't mean that we're absolved from communicating truth. An open door doesn't mean that we don't seek to wisely interact with people in meaningful ways, that we enter their world. What he does here, I'm going to point this out in a second here. He enters their world. He enters their hopes. He enters their worldview. He enters their understanding of how the universe works. He enters that as a connection point, and then he comes alongside and brings the truth of God to it. But he relates to them. John Stott, in his commentary, says this about Paul's preaching to the Lystrans, uh, or the Listerines, I guess, or whatever they are. This is, this is how, he, uh, how he says. This, this is very helpful. He says, we need to learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. We cannot change the gospel. Nor is there ever any need to do so. But we have to begin where people are, to find a point of contact with them. With secularized people today, this might be what constitutes authentic humanness. The universal quest for transcendence. He means that in lying within everybody's a hope. There's got to be something more beyond this world. The hunger for love and community. We, we know that. People have a hunger for that. The search for freedom or the longing for personal significance. Every person wants their life to count. That's what he's saying. Wherever we begin, however, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. 
You see what he's saying? We need to learn from Paul. It's flexible. He doesn't go in rigidly and say, you got to come to my Jewish background and understand. He goes to them. He brings his message in a way that we could say fits their context. And he speaks to them. This is how Paul the missionary thinks. We're going to see it again in Acts 17 where he addresses the unknown God. You may be familiar with that section. So he's going to do that again. And we're all called to think this way and to act this way with people who don't know the Lord. That we might be seeking to relate to, to love and serve and share the good news with them. Now... We're not all missionaries like Paul. I want to be careful of that. that. I mean, in one sense, we are all missionaries. If, if a missionary is someone that takes the gospel and testifies by their word to those who don't know the gospel, if that's a missionary, we're all missionaries. But that's not what Paul is. What Paul is is unique. And I, I like to reserve that word somewhat for the unique call. Maybe we use a different word, like apostle might be the word. But, but Paul's somewhat unique because we're all called to take the gospel, but we're not all called to go to foreign nations and plant churches. We're not all called, we're not all gifted with the cross-cultural ability to do what Paul is doing here in a radically cross-cultural context. We don't all have that level of gifting. We're not all called to be preachers out planting churches and appointing elders. We're not all called, what he's doing, there's something unique about that. So we're going to call him, maybe the Southern Baptists have it right. They have the International Mission Board, the Home Mission Board. So maybe if we are all missionaries, some of us are home missionaries and some of us are international. That might be a fair use of the word. We're all on mission, but we're not all cross-cultural missionaries like he is planting churches as an apostle. But we all are to connect with those around us and to understand, to go to them rather than to demand that they be where we are in order for them to hear the gospel. And so, we too must know how can we bring good news to those around us who worship different gods. Now, we're not going to leave here today and you're going to go to a restaurant and there's not going to be a... there's not going to, I was going to say there's not going to be an idol. There could be actually some restaurants you go to uh, do have idols in the restaurant. So I've seen that like at Chinese restaurants, for instance. So maybe that's maybe that's valid illustration. There's not going to be a Zeus idol when you go to lunch today or something like that. So it may not be sort of these types of gods, but we all worship and our culture worships foreign gods. We are very materialistic as a as a culture, aren't we? We're very individualistic. We're very consumeristic. So we have our own kind of gods that we bow down to as well. The Lystrans had their gods. They had an understanding of how life worked. Here was their understanding of how life worked. You sacrifice to the god and get in the favor of the god, and the god will take care of you and provide rain for your crops, will provide an abundant harvest, will provide fertility. So you appease the gods. This is how the universe works. You appease the gods, get them on your side, and they will help you. So that was their understanding. So they had gods. They had an understanding of the way that life works. And and they also had an understanding of certain human aspirations. He addresses that too. What are their human aspirations? They want to be satisfied with their food. They want personal satisfaction with their lives. He addresses that and said, God gave you any satisfaction that you have. And not only that, but they want to be glad. They they have gladness. He points that out. You've had gladness. There's no gladness apart from the the God of the universe that gives to all. He gives rain to the righteous and the unrighteous, and he allows them to enjoy his creation. So they had gods. They had an understanding of how life works with those gods, and they had human aspirations. And Paul addresses those and brings the gospel to bear. And so where we are, there are gods as well. 
uh, tricky thing is we are all syncretists at heart, and so we follow some of the same gods that those around us do, um, like greed and lust, and we, we battle those same gods uh, as well, though we have allegiance to the one God, Christ. So the people around us have an understanding of how life works. Most of them don't think, well, I'm going to sacrifice to Zeus, but they have an understanding of how the life works. They think, well, if you work hard, you'll be successful. If you do the right thing, then good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. I shared a few weeks ago about someone who asked me about karma and did I believe in karma. That's in Little Elm, okay? That wasn't in some, I wasn't in some uh, really exotic uh, kind of you know, international location. No offense to Little Elmers. Um, what, what happens if, if I'm, you know, so we think we know how life works, that um, if we're moral, God will be pleased with us. If we're religious and we do religious things, that God will certainly be happy with us and we'll be a Christian. We'll go to heaven. So people, that's how people think life works. Various ways around us. People have aspirations around us. People have aspirations for safety, for comfort. That's why they moved to Frisco. You can get safety and comfort and family life. People have aspirations for their children to be successful, for their children to have opportunities. That's why the families around us have eight minutes a week of free time uh, that isn't filled on the calendar with kids' activities. People around us want prosperity because they think that's the good life. They want to be respected. They want status. They want to be satisfied as well, just like the Listerans. They want uh, as well to have gladness. And so people around us need the good news as well. And we need to understand how do they think, seek to relate to them where they are, and seek to show them what Stott says is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all human aspiration. We have aspirations that we turn on ourselves and pervert. God doesn't fulfill perverted aspirations, but he fulfills the natural longing that is on the human heart. Jesus and Jesus alone. There's going to be a lecture lab this week in community group. I'm going to give you some questions about this to, to think this through. And I'm going to let you apply this as a group and as an individual. So you have lab this week. And uh, you don't need to prepare. As long as you listen to what I said reasonably well, you will do fine on the test. Uh, there'll be no test. Here's the other thing. Not only does he open the door, God opens doors. We have to relate to people on the other side of the door as they are. Here's the second point, and we're done here. Uh, we should expect some rejection on the other side of the door. We should expect some rejection. There's no place that I'm aware of in the Bible where there's no resistance to the gospel. There may, even in revival, Acts 2, very quickly we're into resistance. Very quickly we got a martyr. There's no place where there's not resistance. Not America, not Texas, not the Bible Belt. There is no place where there's not resistance. We see there's persecution, there's division, there's breaking down of human relationships, there's slander, there's physical harm. There's tr- Paul has these troublemakers. Can you imagine? I'm going to the backwoods. Oh, here they are. Stones in hand slandering him, poisoning the people's minds about him. There they are. And so wherever we share the gospel, this is a basic reality that there will be resistance. This is so true that Jesus prepares, 
even to be my follower. That's the introduction, he says, take up your cross. What does Paul do when he goes around to the churches? Paul goes back to the churches to establish them. What does he do? New believers training. Number one, read your Bible. I'm sure he did say that. It's just not mentioned here. Number two, pray. I'm sure that's in there, but he didn't say it. Number three, find a good church, the church of your choice. There's only one. Uh, It's First Church of Lystra. So find a good church. I'm sure he says that. Here, here's, here's the new believer training that he gives. Verse 22, he strengthens the souls of these new believers. How? Encourages them to continue in the faith. That's lesson one. Many of you are going to fall away from God because your faith isn't genuine. It's not sincere. You just responded. Persevere in faith, trusting Jesus Christ because he has a hold on you if you're a genuine believer. Trust his grip on you. Number two, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, it's going to be hard. Did you all see me out there taking that stoning? Okay, that might happen to you. That's their world. And so it's going to be hard. So new believer training one-on-one is you're going to be rejected. You're already being rejected. You might be at this Bible study secretively. Your family doesn't even know because you're already being rejected. Number three, what does he do? He puts elders in. Why? Because these people need care. They need help. He's establishing a church. He wants a safe place. He wants a place where life can be demonstrated to other believers. And wants an apologetic of the work of Christ through the church. And so he puts them together. Elders care for troubled and battered sheep. And they're going to all be experiencing some of that. The Bible says, in the world you have tribulation. That is so foreign to our mindset. So foreign to our mindset. Probably if I said today, raise your hand if you theologically would consider yourself part of the word of faith, prosperity theology movement. You believe prosperity theology. If we said, raise your hand if you believe that. There may be some, but not a ton at this church. Probably not a ton. But functionally... If we look at everybody's heart and say, functionally, how much of us expect that because I'm a Christian, it's just going to go well with me, and I'm shocked when it doesn't? Probably every hand in the room goes up. We're all prosperity theologists at heart. So the expectation here is open the door. God's going to open the door. Open the door. Tell the good news. Relate to people where they are. i got a lot of growth there. i got a long ways to go. I think we as a church got a ways to go. I know I do. I can't speak for you. So let me just say me. I, I got a long ways to go to be connecting with people where they are in their life, understanding their world, caring about their world, seeing things from their point of view, listening, relating, serving, caring, involved with them so that I know them well enough, preaching the gospel to them, and I'm doing it in a way that targets who they are, where they are, what they're living for. Number two, realizing that when I open the door, God's going to open the door and some people are going to slam it. And you can't really slam the door on... Well, okay. They're, it's going to feel like a slam door because they don't want any part of it. Or they don't want to be our friend anymore. Or you don't get the promotion at work. Or you don't get invited to the block party because all the neighbors are talking about you and your faith. Not because you were a jerk, but because you were humble, loved Jesus, you were associated with him, and you were resisted. Family gatherings are awkward when you go back with your extended family. For some of us, that will, that will happen. And so that's what he says. There's a lot of tribulation. It's glorious, though, because it's good news. It's what you were created for. It's the hope of eternity, the certainty that you'll spend eternity with God in heaven. And that you are living for something that counts. Praying for God to open doors because some people on the other side of the door, they will respond. God will touch their heart. And Jesus will pick them up and bring them through the door to his side. 
but He will use us as we share this good news and as we seek to understand, love, serve, care, relate where they are, not self-righteously calling them to where I am, my understanding, but humbly serving them where they are with the good news. And to see someone and someones and to see a stream of folks coming through that door and then having this experience where they're being built together as a church, that is the highlight of life. It doesn't get any better than seeing new life, new birth, people meeting the Lord, built together, who go out and do more, pray for more open doors, see more doors open, churches planted, reaching the nations. That is what we're created for. And so this little chapter gives us a great vision into what God can do and will do for those who make themselves available to Him for His usage to reach people. Let's pray and ask God to make us those kind of people. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.